Welcome, friend. Follow me. We're going somewhere dark, somewhere dangerous. Most people would never dare enter the place we are going. There's no telling what horrors we'll find, what terrors we'll uncover. Don't say I didn't warn you. We might discover terrible monsters lurking there. Be careful, they could follow you out. Or maybe they're already inside you. Are you afraid? Good. Now you are ready to enter the Warning Woods. My new novel, Mr. Secrets, is out now. I'm very happy with how this book turned out. If you're a fan of The Warning Woods, I think you will love it. You can order a paperback, hardcover, or ebook through Amazon, and soon there will be an audiobook available on Audible and iTunes as well. Order soon to get your copy in time for some Halloween reading. Again, it's called Mr. Secrets, and it's available through Amazon. I'll put a link in the show notes. All right, enjoy the show. In 1907, Graham Wills was found guilty of murdering his entire family. In an all-too-easily-obtained confession, Wills said he woke around midnight and decided it was time. In his own words, the children had become spoiled pestering rats and my wife their indulgent rat mother. I had tried to be reasonable, but they simply needed to be exterminated. He had quietly gotten out of bed and gone downstairs to the front door where he kept his boots. Inside one of the boots, he had stashed a bolt gun, the type used for slaughtering livestock, that he had stolen from a farm supply store a few days earlier. He took the device upstairs and went room to room, bed to bed, until he was the only Wills left breathing. Graham Wills, after putting his family down like animals, went upstairs and slept until dawn while their bodies grew cold. The Wills family home is located on an acreage just south of Seattle. Yes, it's still there over 100 years later. It sat abandoned for a few years, then was auctioned off to another young family. That family quickly moved out, claiming they had been insufferably oppressed by the Wills family ghosts. The house became a popular destination for teenagers on dares after it had been abandoned again. They came from miles away to try and spend a night in the old rotting house, And if the stories are to be believed, not one of them made it to sunrise. In 1967, the house was purchased by a savvy couple from New York who had it fixed up without any changes to the interior. They left the original floors, reinforced but did not replace the stairs, and left the walls cracked plaster alone. When asked about the renovation by an NBC reporter, the couple said they didn't want to disturb the home's spirits. During that broadcast, They announced their plan to open the house for visitors. For a fee, anyone could come see the murder house for themselves. If you wanted to pay a little extra, you could even try spending the night. By 1972, the Wills murder house had closed again. The owners were facing five lawsuits over injuries sustained there. There were accusations of foul play, people claiming the couple had hired actors to attack them during the night or perhaps had even dressed up as ghostly assailants themselves. Visitors came out of the house with bruises and scratches and harrowing stories to go with them. The most disturbing to me was a woman who woke up in the morning thinking she had successfully spent the night without an encounter. When she sat up in bed, her wife had screamed. There was a circular red impression at the base of her skull with an equally red dot in the center. It looked like a bolt gun had been pressed against her head long enough to leave a bruise. 
The house had been entered into the historical building registry, so it couldn't be destroyed, but it was once more off-limits to the general public. That is, until 2012. The embattled owners had passed away and left the Wills murder house to their children. Seizing on the business opportunity, the children reopened the house. This time, they required visitors to sign all sorts of waivers and legal documents before entering. The terrifying encounters started up once more, sans lawsuits. Why do I know the history of the Wills murder house so well? Research, my friend. I wanted to know what I was getting into after I agreed to spend the night inside the house for my friend Jermaine's birthday. He had called me three months prior to get me on board. I think I only agreed because of the three-month buffer between his phone call and the dreaded date. Jermaine had said, Look man, I know this isn't really your thing, but it would be so fun. Just imagine the adrenaline. When I had still shown some hesitation, Jermaine offered the closer. Hey, you know I'm going to bring my girl Kelsey along too. She's got this friend, Danica. Oh man, you'd like her. She's cute as hell, dude, and she's funny. Like, super funny, man. Single? I asked. Obviously, Jermaine had laughed. I wouldn't be setting you up with some other guy's chick in a murder house. The open-ended, who-knows-what-could-happen situation was enough to convince me. I knew fear could be a powerful aphrodisiac. That and, like I said, the cushy three-month buffer. I spent those three months learning everything I've told you so far. I thought knowing more would help me feel less afraid, but boy was I wrong. As three months shrank to two, then one, I started having nightmares about the house. I wish I could remember them now. They've been erased, replaced by the real nightmare of what happened on Friday, October 7th in the Wills murder house. I pulled up to the house at 6.30 that evening. Jermaine was already there with his girlfriend Kelsey and her friend Danica. Danny, as I soon learned she liked to be called, was as cute as Jermaine had promised. Her close-fitting tank top showed off two sleeves of colorful tattoos, which gave me an instant conversation starter. We talked for 15 minutes or so in the yard while we waited to be let in. Eventually, the door to the house cracked open, and a skinny, middle-aged man slid through it without opening the door the rest of the way. It felt like he wanted to keep the interior hidden from us as long as possible, or maybe he didn't want to let anything out accidentally. Hello, you must be tonight's guests, he said with a forced smile. That's us, Jermaine confirmed. The man brought us in, but wouldn't let us pass the entryway until we had each taken a clipboard full of paperwork and signed everything on it. Having driven all the way down from Seattle, I wasn't about to get turned out, so I signed each page without hesitation, as did everyone else. Once he checked all of our signatures, the caretaker said, All right, let's start the tour. Follow me. He showed us the ground floor first. The house has a simple layout that, to me, felt very claustrophobic. For example, the living room had one door leading in and no other way out. The entryway was sort of a short hallway leading to the kitchen, which was another dead end. I didn't like how the house sort of funneled its inhabitants into these disguised cages. I also didn't think the house was up to current fire code standards, but that wasn't my problem, and I said nothing about it. Upstairs, the caretaker showed us the bedrooms. There were three in total, but only two were open. You'll be staying in the children's rooms, the caretaker explained. This is one, the other is across the hall there, so you'll all be close to each other. What about the third room? I asked, glancing at Danny. 
Of course, I hoped we might share a room, but I didn't want her to feel like she had to. Ah, the master bedroom. I apologize, but that room is off-limits to guests. We use it for storage, cleaning supplies, and the like. I hope you understand. Sure, Jermaine said, giving me the side eye. These beds, Danny started, sort of mumbling, but just loud enough for our tour guide to hear and fill in the rest of the question. Not the children's beds, don't you worry. Beds were quite small in those days and don't quite meet today's standards. That and, obviously, the result of Mr. Will's actions left them highly unsanitary. Highly unsanitary, I had thought. What a sterile way of saying they were soaked in the blood of children. However, the guide continued, if you look under the beds, you can see the stains left behind by the blood that dripped through the mattress. Groans of disgust from everyone but Jermaine followed this revelation. When he concluded the tour, the caretaker bid us a safe night and drove off in an old pickup. Finally, Jermaine said as we watched the dust billow behind the man's truck. We got this place to ourselves. He motioned for me to follow him to his car. The girls came outside to grab their bags too. I handed Danny my backpack after slipping my keys into a pouch on its side. I asked her to put it upstairs in one of the rooms, but was careful not to specify which one. Jermaine opened his trunk and grabbed a cooler. He told me to grab the suitcase that had been shoved in behind it. The girls put the bags upstairs in the bedrooms, then got comfortable in the living room. We brought the cooler and suitcase into the living room and joined the girls on the couches. Jermaine opened the cooler, cracked open three Coronas, and passed them around before opening a fourth for himself. So what are we going to do all night? Danny asked. Jermaine kicked the suitcase and said, I brought some games and stuff, but let's wait until everyone's finished their beers. Why wait? Asked Danny. You can't drink and play at the same time? Jermaine just smiled. He turned to me, and I thought he was going to wink again. Maybe he did, and I just blinked. He clearly thought I had some idea of what he was plotting, but I felt as confused as Danny. Because, he started mirthfully, I want all of you a little buzzed for the first game we play. Oh no, Jay, what are you doing? Kelsey whined. Her boyfriend maintained his stupid grin and his silence, but as he looked around at each of the three faces glaring back at him, Jermaine broke character. Oh, come on, guys. You really want me to spoil the surprise now? I'm not even spooked yet. You'd better tell us right now or I swear to God I'm sleeping in the car, Kelsey said. Jermaine raised his hands in surrender and leaned forward. His eyes bounced between the rest of us as he unzipped the suitcase at his feet. With a ba-ba, he flipped the top open and revealed a box laid flat across the top of his clothes. Oh, Jay, come on. Kelsey shouted into her hands. Her voice was muffled by her fingers. She stepped out of the room, but quickly turned back around and re-entered. She pointed a firm finger at the box. Put that back in the car, right now. Danny looked equally horrified. I actually didn't see the box right away. The top of the suitcase was being propped open by Jermaine's calf, and it was blocking the label from my sight. I had to stand up in order to see it, and immediately understood the girl's reactions. The box said, Mystifying Oracle at the top and underneath in giant creepy letters, Ouija. Oh, hell no, dude, I said, shaking my head. What? Jermaine sputtered. It's just a dumb game I found in my parents' basement. I think someone gave it to me when I was like 10. You guys wouldn't think it was anything more than that if we were literally anywhere else. Yeah, because those other places aren't already haunted by a murderer, you idiot, Kelsey snapped. 
See why I wanted you guys drunk first? Jermaine removed the lid and pulled the Ouija board out of the box. He set it down on the coffee table in the middle of the room and tossed the white plastic planchette it came with onto the board. It landed with a loud snap. Danny screamed. Everyone else jumped at the shrill sound. Somebody just walked past, Danny whimpered, suddenly quiet. She had gotten to her feet and was pointing at the doorway. I tapped Jermaine on the shoulder as I walked past him to investigate. He followed just behind me. Hello? I called through the doorway. No one responded. I didn't hear anyone moving in the kitchen or up the stairs either. Where did they go? I asked Danny. She pointed to the right, toward the kitchen. I shrugged at Jermaine, and we continued our search. The kitchen was empty. Still, we stayed in there for a minute to talk. I don't know if the girls are going to be able to handle this, I admitted. I mean, maybe Kelsey can if you give up on the Ouija board, but Danny? I think she's going to have an aneurysm if we stay much longer. She's already seeing things. Wait, you want to leave? Jermaine asked, seeming scared of the answer. No, I mean, I don't want to, but I'm worried we should. Nah, man, come on, it's barely even... Jermaine trailed off as he looked at the kitchen window. He squinted and poked his head forward a little. Suddenly he drew it back. His eyes went wide and he uttered a little, oh, as he grabbed my shoulder and turned me toward the window. Shh, look. I had to squint at first too, but then I noticed something moving in the faint reflection on the window glass. There was a woman behind us, wearing a big, old-fashioned dress. She had her back to us and appeared to be chopping vegetables or something. Her reflection was even fainter than our own. Think that's who Danny saw? I whispered so quietly I could barely hear myself. The woman's head lifted up and turned in our direction, but she didn't appear to see us. Jermaine nodded his head back toward the living room and tugged at my shirt. I needed no further prompting to follow him out of the kitchen. When we returned to the living room, Danny and Kelsey were both near the curtained window. They were moving slowly along the wall, coming towards us. When Kelsey saw us, she made a zipper motion across her lips and pointed across the room. Jermaine and I obeyed and kept quiet as we looked where she was pointing. Her finger was aimed at the couch we had been sitting on a minute earlier. The impression I had left in the cushion still dimpled the fabric. But the longer I stared at the impression, the more certain I thought it was far too deep to have been left behind by me. I glanced to where Jermaine and Danny had been sitting and noticed neither of them had left deep bowls of air behind when they had stood. The cushions were supposed to bloat back into shape. Someone, someone we couldn't see, was sitting in my spot. Jermaine nudged me and pointed at the window behind Kelsey and Danny. I immediately understood what he meant. I motioned for the girls to come forward and stepped into the living room myself, watching Jermaine to make sure he was ready, for what I don't really know. I drew back the curtain. I only had to pull it halfway across the window to expose the reflection of the dimpled couch. There was a shadowy reflection, similar to the woman in the kitchen, but this one belonged to a tall man. I could tell he was tall even though he was sitting. He held a newspaper in his hands, but he wasn't looking at it. He seemed to be staring off into space. I couldn't see his eyes through the dark shadows his heavy brow cast over them, but I could see the tightness in his jaw, the wrinkles in his brow, and the thick vein protruding from his neck behind his beard. Graham Wills looked ready to kill somebody. 
I drew the curtain back over the glass and turned to the rest of the group to see if they had also seen Graham's ghost. Judging by the looks on their pale faces, they had. I think Jermaine was about to say something, probably whisper it, when an erratic drumbeat of little feet clobbered the floor above us. Whatever Jermaine was going to say came out as a throaty sound somewhere between a gasp and a cry instead. The impression on the couch slowly filled in. The couch actually groaned as the invisible man stood. We all froze in place, too afraid to move. Kelsey shivered and hugged Jermaine's arm like a python. She whispered, I just got really cold for a second. I felt it too, Jermaine whispered back. A heavy footstep landed on the first stair and made everyone, including me, scream. The other three came running back into the living room. Now there were little footsteps running around upstairs and big ones climbing up towards them. Guys, can we please just go? Danny asked. Yeah, Jay, we got what we came for, Kelsey added. Jermaine nodded. Yeah, okay, we can go. But who's going to get our stuff from upstairs? We all looked at each other, remembering the bags the girls had taken up to the bedrooms. Can't we just leave them? Kelsey asked. Yeah, we can come back in the morning, Danny offered. No, my keys are up there, I said, frustrated at myself. The group groaned. Man, leave them. You can come with us. We'll go to a hotel or something, Jermaine offered. I considered this idea, but the thought of leaving all of my belongings in this old, unprotected house bothered me as much as the footsteps we continued to hear above us. It's fine. I'll just go up myself and get the bags, I said. Danny, do you remember which room you put mine in? The one on the right, she said. I wanted to get my bag first in case that was all I had time to do. I could tell everyone wanted to stop me, but was glad no one tried. I know it sounds irrational, but I knew I would have spent the rest of the night imagining spirits going through my things, or worse, someone breaking into the infamous house and taking everything, including my car. As I took my first step up the stairs, I shuddered. The sound of my Nike on the wood matched the footsteps we had heard go up a few minutes before. Hurry up, man, I want to get out of here, Jermaine said. I nodded. I pretended I was just going up a normal flight of stairs in a normal house on a normal night. Just going up to get my wallet and keys. No biggie. This delusion came easier when the footsteps upstairs went quiet. I thought they might have heard me coming, then quickly banished the thought from my mind. There were no ghosts. Ghosts weren't real. Ghosts still weren't real when I reached the room on the right and found mine and Danny's bags. They were thrown onto the bed that I'm still convinced we would have shared had the evening taken a different route. The other bedroom door was wide open across the hall and I could see Jermaine and Kelsey's things on the floor. There still wasn't any activity to be concerned about, so I decided just to take everything so we wouldn't have to come back in the morning. My hands were completely full with everyone's bags until a violent knocking on the master bedroom door made me drop them all. The knocking didn't stop. It didn't even pause. What sounded like a fist hammering the inside of the door went bang, bang, bang over and over until the others came up to check on me. Even then, the banging continued. Come on, grab this stuff and let's get out of here, Jermaine shouted over the banging. That's how loud it was. A grown man standing two feet away had to shout to be heard over it. The girls quickly grabbed the closest bags, and Jermaine picked up the last one, then grabbed my shirt and pulled me toward the stairs. I don't remember this, but he said I was sort of transfixed by the locked door. We all barreled down the stairs. It was hard to tell with eight feet stomping on those steps, 
but I could have sworn there were more footsteps pounding their way down, belonging to feet we couldn't see. Jermaine opened the front door and ushered the girls out. I tossed a glance at the living room and saw the cooler and suitcase still on the floor. I wanted to get out, but I told myself if I could just handle a few more seconds inside, we would never have to return to the Will's murder house again. Jermaine gave me a funny look and pointed out the door. Hang on, I said. I ran into the living room and popped the handle up on the cooler. Then I reached for the suitcase, but realized it hadn't been zipped. Not wanting to spill all of Jermaine's belongings as I dragged the suitcase along, I bent over to zip it up. A floorboard creaked behind me and I looked back, thinking Jermaine had come to help. Instead of my tall, handsome friend, I saw three little children. I couldn't see them in the room, but like their father, they were reflected in the window. Two boys and a girl, all between 8 and 12 years old, all colorless and transparent. Standing behind me with their hands behind their backs like they were patiently waiting. I froze halfway through zipping the suitcase. Connor, let's go! Jermaine yelled. Upstairs, we heard a sound like a shotgun, rattling metal, and a second, softer bang. The locked door had been broken open. I'm sorry, I whispered to the invisible kids. It sounds stupid now, but it seemed right at the moment. I finished zipping the suitcase and took its handle in one hand, the coolers in the other. A new sound reverberated upstairs. Something was rolling down the hallway. In order to be more quiet, I lifted the suitcase and cooler off the floor as I crossed the living room. Whatever was rolling down the upstairs hallway reached the top of the stairs just as I reached the bottom. I passed the cooler off to Jermaine, and he stepped outside. I took the front door in my freed hand and prepared to shut it, but decided to wait until I saw what was on the stairs. Up there, in the dark, the object rolled down one stair, then the next. It landed on each step with a heavy, hollow thud. I waited there in the threshold of the house until the object finally dropped onto the floor and rolled until it knocked against the toe of my shoe. It was a rusty cylinder with a pistol grip and trigger. A bolt gun. The bolt gun. For some idiotic reason, the very weapon used to kill the Wills family was still kept inside the murder house. I slammed the door and didn't look back. I was right about one thing. I wasn't able to stop thinking about the spirits in the Wills murder house for the rest of the night, or for long after. Actually, I still can't stop thinking about them. We ended up at a cheap hotel that night. We finished off Jermaine's beer while we watched some dumb late-night shows. Then, everyone just went to sleep. I let Danny have one of the queen beds, and I took the pull-out. The spring seemingly a millimeter beneath my spine kept me awake until my eyes could no longer stay open. I wondered. Well, I wondered a lot of things. But one question became the most prominent. If we had stayed in that house, if we had fallen asleep in those beds, would we have ever woken up? Or would someone have found us the next day with holes in the backs of our heads like poor Mrs. Wills and her innocent children? I tell my story often to warn future visitors about the danger in the house. No one believes me. That's alright, though. You'd have to be absolutely insane to go to sleep inside the Wills murder house. You made it out. Congratulations. If you enjoyed the story, please rate and review this podcast wherever you like to listen. 
Reviews are the best way to support the podcast and help it grow. You can also become a patron at patreon.com slash thewarningwoods. If you want more creepy content, including the images that accompany each story, follow me on Instagram at thewarningwoods. If you feel ready, meet me here next week for another journey into the warning woods. Thank you for listening.